evening, everyone. Erev Tov. Welcome to Echoes of Eden this evening as we continue our journey through the Torah in a year following uh, the lectionary. And so uh, this week is another double portion. Uh, we had one last week as well. We are in Sefer Vayikra, the book of Leviticus, and this week the double portion contains the 29th and the 30th division of the 54 Torah divisions and pretty much puts us right in the, the middle of the Torah. Uh, the portion is known as Akare Mot uh, for the first one and the second portion is known as Kedeshim. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit more about what part of the Bible and what those names mean uh, after we begin with the, the blessing. So uh, let's uh, bow our heads and we'll begin with the blessing. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ho'elam, asher kidishanu b'mitzvotah v'sivanu le'esok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to be immersed into the words and the matters of Torah. Amen. Okay, so as I said, Akare Mot and Kedoshim are the two portions. Uh, Akare Mot uh, means after death, uh, specifically in Leviticus 16, talking about after the death of uh, Nadav and Avihu, the, the sons of um, Aaron, uh, the high priest. And Kedoshim uh, means holy or holiness. Uh, holy ones, different ways you can translate it, all coming from the roots kadosh, to be holy. Uh, and it covers Leviticus chapter 16 through 20. Uh, so it's really, considering especially that it's a double portion, uh, not a lot of data, not a lot of material. They're two really short portions, which is why most of the time they are combined. Uh, and also there's a little bit uh, when we want to be looking at uh, the Torah from kind of like a messianic shadow perspective, looking at what deeper implications there are. Just the title of the double portion, this is a very common double portion. When you look at the meaning of both of them put together, you have quite a wonderful image of the gospel because you have after death, holiness, right? So it's after death that something holy and spectacular happens. Uh, and so the portions combined together sort of have a little bit of that flavor to them. Uh, but also because it's in Sefer Vayikra, because it's part of the book of Leviticus. Uh, remember, the book of Leviticus is all about holiness, uh, setting apart, uh, and so forth. And so if we're building from the book of Exodus, where when we talked about the tabernacle, the building of the tabernacle, and the, uh, the, the priesthood and the garments, and we kind of saw on an archetypal level that was about building our tabernacle, right? The tabernacle within us, uh, and then uh, that the, the, the awakening the priest within us, and with all that was about. Uh, Leviticus is really talking about and trying to inspire you to live this uh, holy life, this set-apart life. Uh, and today, I, when, when I was even driving around, uh, listening to the radio just randomly, oddly enough, somehow, whatever show it was, was talking about Leviticus. And uh, the guest on the, the show, uh, I don't know his perspective, I didn't listen enough before or enough afterwards, but he spoke about a lot of, but he did mention 
that Leviticus was the book that Jewish children learn to read from, and, and it's the first one they memorize, and that's been the ancient practice, and we've talked about that. And he said the reason for that was, one of the main reasons was, it teaches submission, and it teaches obedience, because there's a lot going on in there that uh, is really about... They, if you think about it from the historical narrative, God had brought these people out of Egypt, and they'd been in there for generations, and so they had a certain mindset, a certain worldview that really wasn't of God and really wasn't godly. It was very much uh, Egypt and Egyptian and that slave mentality and so forth, and so Leviticus was all about training, like, how to be set apart, how to be different, and so uh, when you come apart cross passages in Leviticus about don't wear wool with linen, don't wear two kinds of clothing, one made with the animal fibers, one made with uh, vegetation fibers, and so forth. There are deeper reasons for that, but on a very basic level, it's first and foremost submission. Are you going to be obedient to this? Are you going to submit to something bigger than you? And are you going to do this so that you will stand apart, so that you will be set apart, so that there will be no mistaking you as one who belongs to the tribe of the God of heaven and earth? And so uh, Leviticus very much, including this week's double portion, continues uh, in that vein. Uh, And also, as I was kind of getting things ready for this week, because it's kind of a short portion, I wasn't sure kind of the certain what aspects I wanted to focus in on. Uh, so I kind of looked at, again, a couple of methodology uh, concepts paving the way for us later on in future Torah classes. Uh, but one of those methodologies that we've covered many times, we'll hit again because it's so important, we will see how Jesus himself uses that methodology. Uh, and uses that methodology to make a conclusion that he does in one of his teachings in the Gospels. Uh, And so Jesus specifically mentions this week's portions in his teachings. Uh, And so we'll we'll see where that's at. We'll see what what tool from the Hebraic toolbox Jesus was using. Uh, when he made that teaching, because he very much was using one of those tools. And hopefully that will be something exciting for you again to kind of be exposing yourself to the way Jesus uh, taught the Bible, learned the Bible, and so forth. So that's kind of where we're headed. Uh, But first, let's just get the Goodyear blimp, the overview of what's going on in uh, these two short portions. As I said, akaremot means after death or after the death. Uh, It's found in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 1. And Kedoshim means holy or holy ones. Uh, It's found in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. So following the deaths of Nadav and Avihu, uh, who are the two sons of Aaron, uh, we may remember from previous portion that uh, they were in priests. They were in line to be priests and to officiate the services, but they lit strange fire. Uh, They went outside of the liturgical guidelines that God had set, uh, and that's 
Um, one of the things that was also mentioned in that short radio broadcast is not only here, but elsewhere in Leviticus, God will tell someone not to do something or he'll punish, seemingly punish, again, the way we have understood punish. They put their finger in the light socket. They've received the shock, right? They've received the consequences for improper connection. And then just a little bit later on, he either commands another person to do that thing or someone's commended for doing it. and it's like well which is it and we'll talk a little bit about that this evening but some of that again uh, gets back to the idea of submission uh, it wasn't so much in the end what Nadav and Avahu did was bad or evil in fact they had very holy intent for what they were doing uh, but it was something that they weren't sanctioned for uh, and so, again, that's just improper connection. So because of that improper connection, they're sticking the finger in the light socket, actually cost them their physical lives. And so God warns against any unauthorized entry into the holy, into the holy domains. Only one person, the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, uh, and only one time a year. So one person, one time a year, uh, the day known as Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, uh, could someone enter that innermost chamber in the tabernacle and offer uh, a sacred service to God. And that instruction comes after the death of Nadav and Avahu. Uh, Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, does feature kind of large uh, in Akare Mot, so it's a significant portion. We'll even talk about toward the end and being mindful of, uh, of the portion, uh, a way to incorporate even uh, an aspect of Yom Kippur in our life this week. Because remember, part of studying the Torah in season and along with the lectionary, it's, 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 it's prescribed and as it's outlined in uh, the Torah scrolls and so forth is to live in the times and so Yom Kippur energy is available this week even though Yom Kippur is a holiday in the fall uh, and so uh, the Akare Mot talks about on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur there is the service for the casting of the lots over the two goats to determine which one is offered to God and which one is kind of dispatched out into the wilderness, back out into the unknown, the chaos, uh, the world from which in many ways that kind of uh, inclination that that goat represents, that it's taken off uh, and along with it the sins of uh, the people into the wilderness. So that portion's that, that act is described in uh, Akare Mot. Uh, I didn't go into it uh, for this evening, but it is worth um, kind of mentioning. And the name of that goat is Azazel, uh, Azazel. And that actually comes up in the gospel accounts uh, when Jesus is on trial and, you know, it's the whole, you want Barabbas, do you want this... What the crowd shouts, in addition to crucify him, but the other things the crowd shouts is actually in Hebrew, Azazel. It's the meaning of the name Azazel. And so what you have in John is Jesus very explicitly being called that goat that goes out into the wilderness 
to be devoured uh, by the, the evil one, if you will, carrying with it uh, the sins of the people. Uh, so read that account in the Gospel of John very carefully, uh, and you'll see all kinds of Yom Kippur motifs going on uh, in that. Uh, since I didn't go into it in depth for this evening, I have in archives, that's why I'm not doing it this evening, but it's always worth mentioning that, that that imagery that comes across in Akaremot finds itself, including the language and, and just the whole kind of setup of the scene uh, in that kind of trial with Jesus. Uh, the portion Akare Mode also warns against uh, bringing sacrifices, whether animal or meal offerings, uh, of having sacrifices anywhere except the tabernacle and eventually what will become the temple. In other words, I think the, the, the specific language best translated is kind of like in the designated place, which means initially the tabernacle as it kind of moved around, but would obviously then come to mean the temple as it stood still. And so that actually is an answer to a very common question that I get asked, and that is, why don't Jewish people sacrifice anymore? It's because there is no temple, right? And the Torah is very, very specific that sacrifices are only to happen in the designated place of sacrifice, which originally was the tabernacle uh, and then becomes what was the permanent tabernacle, the, the temple. Uh, then it goes on to forbid the consumption of blood and details further laws prohibiting things like incest and other deviant sexual behavior. So that's Akaremot, which is a lot for a very short portion. Uh, and then the portion Kedashim uh, begins with the following statement. It begins with, you will be holy because or for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And this is a particular verse that I have said every night before I go to bed since, let's see if I can get it right, uh, 1983. So we're going on, what is that, uh, 40, 40 years? 40 years every night uh, I say this passage, you will be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And that's because uh, a teacher of mine at the time gave me that verse and, and, and told me that that was my verse for life. That was to be my marker. That was prophesied over me, if you will. Uh, and so I've taught it to my children. But what's interesting is my understanding of that, how that verse has changed over the years. Uh, because when I first learned it, obviously, at the time, I would have been eight years old or something like around eight years old. Uh, I obviously had this understanding of you shall be, you will be holy, like you better be like, like almost like a wagging the finger, like you will be this way. And the reason you'll be this way is because God's that way. And that's what God expects of you. And so I took it very much from that kind of ethical, hardcore point of view that I better live a certain way or else, right? You will be. Um, but over time, I began to see that that's actually a profound gospel promise, especially when you realize that 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 16 quotes this verse. So 1 Peter 1 verse 16 quotes portion Kedoshim, quotes the opening verse of Kedoshim. Uh, and when you look at it in the light that St. Peter is using it, as well as the way it's even intended 
in the Old Testament, including here in Leviticus uh, 19, hear the gospel in it. You'll be holy. Why will you be holy? Because your God's holy. Do you hear the gospel in that? Like, my holiness isn't dependent upon me. My holiness is dependent upon my God. And when I'm in my God, when I have union with my God, and as Peter will uh, clearly flesh that out, when I am in Christ and through Messiah have been brought to God, I will be holy. Why? Because my God is holy. That's why his holiness becomes my holiness. And so that verse has changed uh, meaning for me uh, quite a bit through the years. And it's a, a verse that I passed on to my children and we all recite every evening uh, before we uh, turn in for the, for the night. So that's how the portion opens. It's followed by dozens of mitzvot, dozens of connections, dozens of commandments, if you will, through which the individual is able to sanctify him or herself and, and as it relates to the holiness of God. Again, this whole idea is about setting oneself apart, like being connected to God. And because of that, it comes with it, uh, this, this separation. And so things uh, like the prohibition against idolatry, the connection of being charitable, uh, equality in the law, uh, the Sabbath, honesty in business, honor of one's parents, the sacredness of life. These are all kind of outlined as this is one of the, these are the things when, again, my classic analogy is aliens land on earth and these uh, green creatures with three eyes and, you know, seven feet tall are wandering around trying to figure out where they've landed and they uh, uh, stay in a Howard Johnson one night. They read the Gideon Bible in the nightstand and they're like, who are these people that follow this book? We want to meet these people. They should be able by walking around the people to identify who the followers of that book are because they stand out. They are different. They are unique, whether it's because they don't cut the corners of their hair, whether it's because they have tassels with the blue thread hanging down, whether it's because they don't cheat on their spouses or how it's how they raise their children or how they view uh, business practices. It goes on and on and on. And that's really what Leviticus is trying to instill in us that's still relevant to us when we read it this week uh, is just the, the power, the, the ability uh, to be holy, right? And again, our holiness is not about us. It's about what God gives to us and infuses into us, but it should make us different. If you don't stand out, if you're not a different flavor than someone who doesn't have your faith, then you don't have faith, right? You, will, you have to be a different flavor. If you're not a different flavor, you're not a different flavor, Okay? So also in Kodoshim, Kedoshim is the dictum uh, that so many rabbis through the ages, including before the time of Jesus, really honed in on as the most important part of the entire Bible. Uh, Rabbi Akiva is one of them. Rabbi Hillel is another. Hillel lived about a generation before Jesus. But that is the dictum um, that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
So Rabbi Akiva said that the entire world hung on that commandment. Uh, Rabbi Hillel said the entire Torah, the entire scripture is summarized in love your neighbor as yourself and everything else is mere commentary. Now in one of the archives, I can't remember which Torah course it was, but it is in the archives. What I tried to do each week because we took seriously, Jesus also comes to this, uh, and we'll talk about that passage much later, but when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? What's the most important part of the Bible, right? He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, but then he says there's one just like it, and we'll now later find out why he's able to say that. It's love your neighbor as yourself, right? Uh, and so we have that great, great connection and so what I did in one Torah series is I took seriously Jesus words when he said that the entire Torah the law and the prophets all hinge on that that everything in the Torah hinges on love your neighbor as yourself and so each week the first section we did was to look at how that section taught are exemplified or displayed loving your neighbor as yourself. And literally every single portion had multiple examples of it. And so we discovered in the course of a year that indeed the Torah does revolve around that commandment. Uh, but Jesus was not the only rabbi who thought that. Uh, but we will find out why he makes the connection with love God and love your neighbor and why he says, in effect, they're the same commandment. That they're 1A. They're not even 1A and 1B because if you're 1B, you're still behind 1A, right? They're not even 1A and 1B. The, the language there is to do one is to do the other. To do the other is to do the one. And that they are really the same thing and that you cannot separate them. That's the language. We'll find out the Hebraic tool that he uses to make that deduction. All right, so that's the summary of the portions. That's what it's describing. Um, so we'll talk. Let's talk about a, a few things in there. Uh, first, I want to talk about the language of the Torah, the Torah, and for that matter, the whole Bible. The whole Bible speaks in the language of human beings, and this is kind of flushed out in your Hebraic toolbox, and that you need to keep in mind that. It speaks in the language of human beings, which means we're human beings, so it needs to be in a way we can understand it, right? Or else we won't get it. But what we have to realize is that it's describing and explaining concepts from an infinite point of view, and it's being expressed so that finite human beings can gather it. So we've got to be careful that we don't literalize metaphors and that we don't take poetry literally like we got to be careful we've always got to be kind of mindful that what's being kind of dropped down from heaven and into our language uh, so in this way because it's in the language of human beings we are able to comprehend to some degree the many references about who God is um, what God is like what it is for uh God to have compassion or even speak of him in terms of jealousy, right? Uh, that's why we have to be careful that we understand it's trying to explain a much deeper concept because we think of jealousy as a very negative thing. Are we really attributing negativity and something most of us would classify as a sin to as an attribute of God, but yet God is clearly described as a jealous 
God. And so when we realize it's dropping down into the language of men, uh, we get a better sense of just who God is and how we can relate to him, Uh, whether that's talking about mercy or justice, uh, whether that's talking about his anger, if you will. Uh, All all of these have corresponding human character traits, but we got to make sure we always remember it's dropping down into our language. God is not human, and so God does not have human character traits the way we truly know and experience them. The anthropomorphic presentation of God's attribute is also present in the Torah's physical descriptions of the divine, such as when it talks about the hand of God or the arm of God or the eyes of God, right? God doesn't have arms and hands and eyes. So it's the language of men that enables us to relate to it. A beautiful example of this is found in Rashi's comment on why the Torah introduces the laws of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, with the words from the opening portion of Akaremot, Leviticus 16, verse 1, which says, And God spoke to Moses after the death, Akaremot, after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they came before God, meaning when they literally came before God, when they went into the presence of God, kind of like into the Holy of Holies, offered uh, unsanctioned fire, improper connection, and therefore they died. So why after the death does God then through Moses choose to reveal the laws of the day of atonement, Yom Kippur? The two sons of Aaron entered the Holy of Holies with incense, which is commanded later, and their priests are supposed to do that, but they did so without permission. And so they tragically suffered the consequences of their unsanctioned connection. But after their deaths, the Torah prescribes the very same procedure for which they were zapped for to be enacted by the high priest on the day of Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year. So the very thing they did and did not survive, God then says, I want your priest to do that once a year. And not only that, it's still going to be the holiest day of the year. So Rashi, whenever Rashi is a famous commentator on the Torah, you always ask, what's troubling Rashi? Because he always has these piercing questions from the text. So this troubled Rashi. The difference, of course, is that in the case of the high priest, Akaremot, after the death of the two sons, the Torah is endorsing such an act. It's commanding it. Whereas the two sons of Aaron acted of their own accord and were not submitting to what they had been told. But to explore and explain this subtle difference, Rashi brings a very practical parable from Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah, that tells the story of two men who go to a doctor. The first is warned not to eat radishes or to lie down in a cold cellar on account of his health. And that's all the doctor says. Don't eat radishes. Don't lie down in a cold cellar. Just don't do it. Listen to me and don't do it. I'm a doctor and just don't do that. The second patient is given the same exact advice except it has an additional caveat. Lest you die like the previous patient. Do you think that hits different? 
It hits different, doesn't it? The conclusion drawn by Rashi is that the second man will most likely take the doctor's warning far more seriously. Therefore, when the text proclaims God's anger or the threat of the actualization of punishment, it's actually articulating the inherent consequences of human behavior and choice, as is made crystal clear throughout the Torah. And so Rashi's explanation here is an example, a great example of the Torah speaking in the language of human beings, which drives this teaching home in a manner to which we can then relate to it. All right, so Yom Kippur and the four-letter name of God. As part of the religious decorations in many synagogues, in fact, I would say most synagogues around the world, the following verse from Psalm 16 is found displayed very prominently. Psalm 16, verse 8. It's often called the Shaviti. I put God before me at all times, or I place God before me at all times. Um, In fact, uh, as I said, that's... I don't know if I've been in a synagogue that doesn't have the Shaviti. And why it's called the Shaviti is because in Hebrew, the verse goes, Shaviti Adonai Lenegdi Tamid. Shaviti is the Hebrew verb for I place or I put. So it's just kind of the shorthand name for that verse. It's called the Shaviti. I place God before me. Uh, at all times and you know you look at that and you think oh okay you know that's meaning oh we should have priority in our life God should be first priority you can think of different applications for it Mm, all are fine but that's not why it's displayed in synagogues or in homes in a deeper devotional sense this verse is actually interpreted to mean that the essential four-letter name of God quite literally the spelling of the four-letter name of God is to always be in front of you and so that means that wherever you're at between you and whatever you're looking at between you and whatever you're thinking about between you and wherever you're about to go there is God that you have to go through, right? He's between, the, the, there's the idea of that's protection, right? You're behind this name of God. You're behind the authority of God. Uh, but it's also kind of uh, a powerful reminder of, well, what are you about to do? Because you're going to be going through God's name to get there to do it, and God's name is still going to be in front of you when you're there doing it. Uh, and so to literally visualize it, uh, and it's to inform and be part of the process of thinking in every aspect of reality. Uh, a Shaviti often looks like this. I have one in my home office. I have one in my office here at Emanuel. It's a little more colorful than that. But at the very top line, you can see in big, bold print the four-letter name of God, Yud, Hey, and Vav with a Hey. Um, and then it says Shaviti Adonai Lenegdi Tamid right there on the top. Then the menorah is actually Psalm 67 written out. So you, 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 you sing Psalm 16, verse 8, multiple times. Then you read Psalm 67, which is understood to be the shield of David. And that, that menorah was the original shield of David, not the two triangles. Uh, and then the verses on the side and underneath are different names of God as well as different verses that you, again, kind of look at and meditate but 
from a devotional point of view, that's kind of what you're to see in front of you all the time, is placing God before you. And uh, the four-letter name of God looks like this. On your sheet, I kind of have it vertically instead of horizontally because we're going to talk about each of the four letters as we see it manifested kind of before us uh, in the Torah. But it starts on the right side. On your right, Hebrew reads right to left. Uh, it's a yud, then it's a letter hey, then it's a letter vav, which is kind of the stick, and then the final letter is another hey, yud hey, vav hey. Uh, and so to kind of show uh, the kind of Hebraic mindset, so Jesus, no doubt, just to, if we're just going to assume, we're going to get really crazy and make some assumptions about Jesus. He's Jewish. He lived in the Galilee, which is in Israel. He was faithful. He was faithful to a Jewish religion in the Galilee in the first century. And therefore, he probably did what first century faithful Jews did. If we get really crazy and assume all that's true, it meant that that Psalm 16, verse 8, is something that he said every day. It's something he said every day when he got going. And that practice of always seeing these four letters in front of him would have been something he would have been taught by Joseph. It would have been something he would have been taught growing up as he went to uh, Beit uh, Sefer and Beit Midrash uh, and as he was around other individuals. Uh, and so to take that and then to see, well, does that apply? Can you see that in the Torah? Can you see this four-letter name? How, what does it really mean to have it in front of you? Like I kind of described one way, but that still kind of seems abstract. How is this kind of always in front of me? These, this name is really kind of a, an equation that perpetrates all of reality all of the time. So I'll give you a quick example uh, going through this week's portion, Akare Mot in Yom Kippur in the Day of Atonement. So there is a beautiful allusion to these four letters of God's name found within the four major components of the holiday festival Moed appointment known as Yom Kippur. So the Yud, the first letter, the little letter, right, of God's name. Numerically, it equals the number 10, right? So that has a gematria in your Hebraic toolbox of 10, and if you were to say, turn to page 10 in a Hebrew book, it would have that little yud as the page number, right? Letters are numbers, numbers are letters in Hebrew. So it has uh, the numeric value of 10, which corresponds to the date of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, because the day of atonement, according to Leviticus, is the 10th day of the Hebrew month of Tishrei, which is the culmination of the 10 days of repentance from the first of the month to the tenth of the month of Tishrei those ten days are set apart for repentance because it's viewed that that's when God opens the book of life right and begins to make his accounting and so you have these ten days to 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 repent and to beseech God uh, for his mercy and so forth another connection between Yud 10 and Yom Kippur relates to Moses coming down from Mount Sinai. And while they weren't commandments, what does he come down with? He comes down with ten words, right? He comes down with the ten devarim, inscribed on the tablets of the law. And he does that on, when he comes down with the second tablets, that's on the day of Yom Kippur. The day of Yom Kippur is the day the golden calf sin was forgiven. 
That's the original numero uno, very first Yom Kippur. The 10th day of the month of Tishrei, Moses comes down from Sinai with the second tablets, with the Ten Commandments, if you will, and the people are forgiven. Uh, and so, additionally, the high priest, if you watch and pay attention in the Torah, uh, washes his hands ten times during the Yom Kippur, the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Uh, washes them, and then he does a mikvah five times, twice, for a total of ten. So, lots of number tens going around with Yom Kippur. And so, that's a yud. Right? That's the Yud being placed before you as you're reading through the portion. Then there's the first hay in God's name. It has a numerical value, a gematria of five, uh, which is significant because in the traditional Day of Atonement service, there are five prayer services or five sections. Normally, there's three that correspond to the, the different uh, hours of the sacrifice, but on Yom Kippur, there are five. Uh, it further relates to the five levels of the soul that we have talked about, the nefesh, the ruach, the neshama, the chaya, and the yakita, with the fifth being that superconscious level that is the most accessible on Yom Kippur. The third letter of God's name, the vav, it has a gematria of six. It's the number six corresponding to the six divisions that on the Day of Atonement, there is the portion that is read for the day, like a lectionary reading, and it's divided into six parts. And significantly, this is the only day of the year there is such a division. The number six also relates to the six cardinal emotional attributes that exist within a person, uh, again, from a Hebraic perspective. And on Yom Kippur, the whole point of Yom Kippur is to, to repent, to bring correction, to rectify uh, these attributes, to seek forgiveness of where we have failed in these attributes uh, for our mistakes in them, uh, and to relate in a healthy manner to our six chief emotions um, that we have. And then the last letter in God's name, the final hey, the second hey, Again, a gematria five. And there are five prohibitions given in Akaremot for uh, the Day of Atonement. And it speaks about afflicting yourself. It's, I think, how most translations have it. But that word for afflicting is really the Hebrew word that means to fast, right? Because it's a type of affliction. Uh, so there's the fasting, no eating and drinking. The second one is there's no bathing. The third one is there's no anointing with oil, um, what we might think of as using soap and stuff and freshening up. Uh, there's four, no wearing leather shoes, and five, no marital relations. And so you have these five prohibitions uh, on Yom Kippur. Uh, and the reason they're there is not a negative reason or that those are bad things. It's because it's viewed that Yom Kippur, the, the Torah itself calls it the holiest day of the year. So that's just what the Torah calls it. Therefore, you believe the Torah is the inspired word of God. You have the answer to what is the holiest day of the year. Uh, that means it's the closest you'll be to, like, heaven this side of earth, if you will, or closest to, to heaven this side of it. Um, 
And that's why it's tradition to wear all white on that day because white's kind of the color of heaven and the angels and all that. And you're on this highly elevated spiritual status. And what you won't be concerned about in that when you're in that truly in that state is you won't worry about eating and drinking and bathing and anointing with oil or wearing fine shoes or your marriage, right? You'll be in a different frame of mind, a different world. Um, and so that's the final hay. Uh, these are just a couple of the ways that when you read through the text, uh, if you take seriously the whole idea of Psalm 16, verse 8, Shaviti Adonai, that you can be placing God's name before you uh, as you read. Uh, there, I have a, uh, know someone in Jerusalem that one of the ways that he practices this is, for instance, uh, he, he's recently published uh, a book of Psalms. But within that book of Psalms, he has kind of the name of God kind of peppered throughout it at certain points so that as you're reading, and it's marked off so you know it's not part of the text, but he's done that so that as you're reading, you're, you're periodically pausing and, and reflecting on the name of this name of God. And he, he usually, through different kind of codes and so forth, lets you know why he's putting that name of God there, the name of God there. Uh, but it's just kind of a, it's a very typical way uh, from a Hebraic perspective, a Torah perspective of reading the scripture and kind of laying that name over it, uh, whether you're looking at its numerical value, sometimes you're looking at uh, breaking that down and permuting it and getting different words uh, that mean different things and kind of seeing that outlined in the text, the whole word, the Yotei Vav equals 26. Uh, that gives you fodder. Two plus six is eight. That gives you more fodder. Uh, it's just a very classic way, again, of drawing deeper meaning out of the text. You can do with it what you want. You know, one of the things I just like to expose you to in the Torah class is how did first century religious people approach the text? And at different times, we find, wow, that actually makes its way into the New Testament as well, as we'll see in a little bit. Uh, but that's one of those. Uh, I also tell you that because Psalm 16, verse 8, is a wonderful way to begin your day, right? No matter how you understand that verse, but the, the whole idea of, like, first thing in the morning, kind of committing to the idea that God is always going to go before you. God's always leading the way. All the different ways you can understand that. Again, protection, guidance, uh, safeguarding you, uh, curbing your thoughts. Like, uh, you know, a lot of times I enjoy wearing a head covering, uh, not because I think I have to or because I think it, it makes, it reminds me. Like, if I have on a head covering, I'm less likely to, you know, I don't know, um, give a hand gesture while I'm driving in my car, right? Because I'm visibly standing out and therefore, my hand gesture clearly is not the ideal of what I would want that to represent. And so it, cur it curbs. It's a curb, right? And that's even small catechism stuff, right? One of the reasons we study the law or study the Torah or study the scriptures is it curbs our behavior. It's a curb. Uh, and so placing God before you can also be a very wonderful curb. Uh, and so just a little bit of a devotion there for you and another way you can connect to Jesus because, again, I can't prove he said it 
you know, every day, all I can tell you is most Jews not only do today, but most certainly religious Jews in the first century Galilee, most certainly the vast majority of them did. Uh, and so it's another way when you're saying it, you can imagine you're saying it with your Messiah and your, your, your devotion is mirroring what his devotion to the Father was. And that always is powerful to me when I think, wow, I'm praying to my Father in heaven the same way my Messiah prayed to his Father in heaven. Right? So not only does that draw me closer to my Father, it draws me closer to my relationship with his Son. Uh, so that's the reason I wanted to uh, include it for you this evening. Now I want to talk about loving your neighbor. So in your Echoes of Eden handbook, in there, there is the Hebraic toolbox, right? And one of the most important used tools by the sages of all ages, including uh, those who interpreted the scriptures before uh, Jesus' earthly ministry, but even most certainly since then, is uh, often what I would call like uh, sometimes juxtaposition uh, or establishing, compare and contrasting and establishing a connection between passages of scripture. And often the standard way of doing that is if one follows another, right? When things are really closely connected, you can kind of follow it and, and see the themes kind of all building. But when they're not in close proximity, there's a very important tool. It's in your toolbox. I call it verbal tallies for you. It's got a longer, much fancier name, but it's verbal tallies. Um, and that's when exact same wording our very similar wording or structure is used in passages that are miles apart. But that same wording or similar wording or similar structure links them. So, for instance, in a Torah scroll, the Song of Moses is written in a very specific format. Like, you can't miss it. You don't have to read Hebrew. If you're just turning, turning, rolling through the scroll, you'll see the page that that song is on, and it's formatted completely different. It's formatted like two shores with people walking through it, right? So it's, it's really an image of the people going through the sea. Justified right column, justified left column, like the land, but the middle column is all curvy, like people are walking, right? It's very unique. However, that formatting is used one other place in the entire scripture uh, in a scroll, and that's outside of the Torah, but in the book of Judges with the song uh, of Deborah. And so that structure links these two, and then lights go off, like there is a very important connection between them. Um, and so it can be done by structure. It can be done by, like, the uniqueness of a word, as we're about to see. Uh, so we're going to look through an example of a verbal tally, including how we'll, we'll kind of come to the end of it, how Jesus used this verbal tally himself. Okay? And then it can help you when you're reading through Scripture and you pay attention, like, even if it's, this is over here and this is over here. Did this person say the exact same thing as this person? They did? From a Hebraic kind of Torah worldview, that means those are linked. That's not a coincidence, right? They're linked. 
Or is it describing the scenery, even though they seem miles apart, generations apart, cultures apart? Is it really? It seems like it's describing the exact same thing, right? That's because that's the way a biblical writer, that's how they made allusions to texts. They didn't just say, look up Psalm 23, verse 2, right? The way we would love for it to be. That's not how they did it. So let's look at a, an example uh, of a verbal tally uh, and seeing how verses from different books of the Bible and in different contexts actually get linked together. So in this week's portion uh, in Kedeshim, the second of the double portion, we have Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And within that verse, toward the end of that verse, it says this. And you shall love, which is one word in Hebrew. It's ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta. That's the important word. Gets translated, and you shall love. Very accurate translation. Great translation. Just know it's one word in Hebrew. Ve'ahavta. You, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am God, or I am the Lord. I am uh, that's how that verse goes. The interesting thing is the Hebrew word ve'ahavta only occurs in the Old Testament. It only occurs two times. That's 66 books. Just look how thick your Old Testament is. Ve'ahavta only occurs twice. Here in Leviticus 19, verse 18, and it occurs in one other place. It occurs in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, where it says, And you shall love, ve'ahavta, the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. It's part of what's known as the Shema. It begins in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Now this, without a doubt, without a doubt, Jesus recited at least twice a day, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and following. Without a doubt. Uh, and so, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Eloheka v'kol lavaveka uvkal nasheka uvkal me'adeka. And you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Those two passages, Leviticus 19.18, Deuteronomy 6.5, only two places you'll see the Hebrew word ve'ahavta, period. And so because of that rare use of the word, these passages become linked. Now, we may not think, well, well, that's not how we, that may not be how we think. That may not be how our seminaries teach us to think with scriptures. That is without a doubt how a first century Jewish person thought and before and still today. That is rock solid biblical interpretation 101, quite honestly is the linking of unique words. So these two passages become married. These two passages are, in fact, in Hebrew, I love what they're, they're described as soulmates. Because there's only two of them. There's two occurrences. Whenever there's only two occurrences of a word, they're described as soulmates. And so they are seen as one side of the other. Now, many commentators also point out the words, I am God, from the Leviticus one, uh, in the verse following loving others, uh, expresses that if one wants to love God or to be close to God, the best way to do that is to love people. So, in other words, 
Leviticus 19 is kind of getting at, you want to love God? Then you need to love other people because how you love other people is how you love God. Now, hopefully, not only a teaching of Jesus, but even think about the epistles of John. Hopefully, all kinds of New Testament bells are going off, right? You can't hate people and claim you love God. Because John would say, you're a liar. And John is making that because of this connection of these soulmates. To love God is to love your neighbor, your fellow human being. Which then, of course, that is the standard understanding, which then, that's when they had to get into the debate, which Jesus enters into with the parable of the Good Samaritan. The whole issue of why that lawyer asked Jesus the question, well, who is my neighbor? Because then it was like, well, my neighbor is just, well, my neighbor is just my, my fellow Lutheran. It's just my fellow member of Emmanuel. That's my neighbor. Catholics aren't my neighbor. The, the pagans, the Buddhists, they're not my neighbor. I'm not obligated to love the Muslim. I'm obligated to love other Christians, right? That kind of thing. Who is my neighbor? Of course, how does Jesus answer that? The person that you're most likely to absolutely despise, that's your neighbor, right? So for the Jew, it was a Samaritan. And so that parable of the Good Samaritan, that was a classic parable of Jesus' day. It's n- there's only one tiny twist in it that's original to Jesus. The rest of it, I can give you dozens of examples that look just like it. But here's how it normally went. A Pharisee was on his way to Jerusalem. And there was a, a wounded man on the side of the road, right? Uh, and, of course, a Sadducee came by. Didn't do anything. Then an Essene, right? Goes through all the, the different list of Jews that aren't like me. But finally, a Pharisee came along, and the Pharisee helped that, helped that other Pharisee. Right? That's your neighbor. So Jesus took what everyone thought, oh, man, here's that boring parable again. about The neighbor is just our fellow Jew that's like us. But Jesus' twist is, it was a Samaritan that was the neighbor. That's what stung him. Right? All of that's still coming off these soulmates. Because it, these link the whole idea, again, to love how you love people is how you love God. How do you love God? By loving people. They don't separate. Okay? In Hebrew, the word for might, like you will love the Lord with all your might, there's a reason in Mark's version when it's quoted, it adds to it because Mark is trying to flesh out the meaning of this Hebrew word meod, M-E-O-D. When it's permuted, it spells the word Adam, meaning a human being. So to love others with one's might means to love others with a full sense of humanity and compassion. From a Torah perspective, there are two types of light. One is called or yeshar, which means straight light, coming from above to below. And then there's or kozer returning light, which is the product of a person's effort and love rising from below to above. Paradoxically, returning light and potential can rise to an even higher place than when from originally emanated. 
For straight light originates from after creation, whereas returning light reaches levels of light even before creation. So the word ve'ahavta, ve'ahavta, you shall love. Numerically, ve'ahavta, if we add up the letters of ve'ahavta, equals 414. So now we're using another tool in the toolbox. We've gotten the verbal tallies to link and find our soulmates, husband and wife here. And one is the other, the other is one. They're just flip sides of the coin, right? Loving God is heads, loving neighbor is tails. Now we're using another tool, gematria, adding up the letters. 414 is exactly twice the word for light, or, so 207 times 2. Hinting at the concepts I just talked about regarding light. Loving God is the ultimate returning light where we acknowledge and thank God for the gift of life and the ongoing flow of divine light, straight light, infusing creation at every moment. So it's the way light comes to us, but that it returns back to above, completing this powerful cycle of light. How do we infuse the entire world with light, including ourselves, when we love the Lord our God and when we love our neighbor as ourselves? It completes a circuit above to below. The idea of straight light and returning light applies similarly to relations between people. Each person has the opportunity to be a channel for both types of light. When one reaches out to another, he or she is expressing straight light. When that light is responded to with the same intensity and feeling, that's returning light. So may there always be a channel to direct love to others, to have that love return back to us. So now I want to talk about Jesus. So Jesus knew and understood this Vahavta connection. And how do we know that? Because of his teaching. So, as I said, only two times in the Old Testament. Pops up in the New Testament because Jesus mentions it. In the Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40. And one of them, a lawyer, which here, I don't like the translation lawyer. Um, it, it really means a uh, a biblical expert, because for a Jew of the first century, their law was the Bible. So some, it meant someone who interpreted biblical law, right? That was their law. So that's the type of lawyer they are. Uh, equivalent would be like canon law in Catholicism. So one of them, a biblical scholar, one who interprets the law on behalf of a community to apply it to their community, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Because the guy already knows the answer. He wants to see if Jesus knows the answer. And he said to him, Ve'ahavta. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. But then he says, again, the language is kind of, but a second is like it, meaning it really means there's an, there's an identical one. Ve'ahavta your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so there you can see Jesus making that connection with Ve'ahavta, with Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 6. That's why he says they're one and the same. They're two sides of one coin. 
because he understands from a hermeneutical perspective, from a textual perspective, ve'ahatta. Okay, being mindful of akare mot. Kind of now, how can we sort of devotionally think through this portion, akare mot, and see what it offers us from a, a kind of carrying it through the week. So akare mot begins with a description of a complicated ceremony of purification performed once a year by one man, the high priest. So it's describing the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The purpose of all expiatory rites was to maintain the purity of the tabernacle, preparing it as a place where the divine presence could dwell in, with, and among God's people. So in order for this to be a dwelling place, which is what a tabernacle means, a dwelling place for the divine, it always had to be in a state of purity. And so all of the acts that were going on in there were all about just maintaining its purity. And as we learned during our study of Exodus, the tabernacle, or a tabernacle, can be found inside of us. And also the high priest resides there as well. And we talked about right, our heart, if you will, being the holy of holies and so forth. Knowing this deeper level, Akare Mot can now be received as a clear reminder of the responsibility to keep our interior sanctuary functioning. So, throughout Exodus, you built your tabernacle. Right? And we, again, explored the symbolisms of the colors and all that, like what all that was getting at. But you built your tabernacle. And you activated your high priest consciousness, right? And Go back and listen to those if you need to, but we talked about all of that. Now what Akare Mode and Leviticus is talking about is now that you have this tabernacle, you got to keep it working. Right? You got to do the maintenance. You got to change the oil. Right? You got to you know, flush the system every once in a while. And when something impure comes in it, you need to take care of it. Uh, so it's a reminder of our responsibility for our inner tabernacle. This inner tabernacle functioning as our place of access to an infinite flow, the, the shefa, the, the divine influx. This is a place where we can experience God, if you will, and the presence of God in our lives moment to moment. Now, some of our forefathers and foremothers realized that a ritual purification performed just once a year, well, that might not be enough for our personal tabernacle. Right? That might have been good enough for God's tabernacle, but our tabernacle might get a little more dirty, and it might get a little more contaminated. And so a very long time ago, a service known as Yom Kippur Katan, the little Yom Kippur, developed. And it's done, or it's performed each day on the day before the new moon, when the new moon, when it's dark, and it's kind of... To, represent like the darkness and all that's a reminder kind of to to activate this transforming the dark time of the month into a time of purification so that the sanctuary within could be clear and a space could be prepared as the moon grew brighter it was to be as your relationship with god was once again renewing uh, and so years ago my teacher introduced me to yom kippur katan and so once a month 
it's it's just going through several psalms and kind of the equivalent in our circles and Christianity and the churches. If you get a hymnal and you open it up, there's a service called a service of confession and absolution. It's just something like that. It's just a reminder, like take care, take do do some do some soul searching, do some kind of you know what's how things going, and of course. Then you think, well, once a year, once a month, well, then it's taught probably not a bad idea to maybe before you go to bed or sometime during the day to reflect and just see how you're doing and get honest with where you let your temper get the best of you or where. um, And so that's why often our services begin with a period of confession and absolution. Believe it or not, you got that from Yom Kippur Katan in your Jewish heritage. Uh, and so it's all of, but all of that's to restore the tabernacle within. The blessing of Akaremot is that it gives us this week, it has the, the spiritual energy, the technology, the opportunity to purify our inner sanctuaries in this regular interval. Uh, once a year, once a month, once a week, perhaps once a day. Because there will always be imperfection, always mistakes in our human story. And after seeing and speaking the truth, there will always be in our Messiah forgiveness. So after describing the ritual of purification, Akare Mot continues with instructions about holiness and things like eating and in relationships. Decisions about what we eat and with whom we have intimacy with must also then be part of our pursuit of holiness which means our motives have to be pure, our intentions clear, and implications considered regarding our actions as well as the effects of our actions on others. Accepting the blessing of God's presence within us means that we are continually doing this process. We do this by honoring the holiness of the body and by guarding against its desecration in regards to habits of eating and other behaviors. During the ritual purification, two goats are brought. One is designated for God, and one is slaughtered as a katat, a sin offering. The other one that is offered is called the azazel, or the one that's sent out, sorry, it's called the azazel. So after laying upon its head all the sins of the people, it's sent into the wilderness to azazel. Whoever or whatever Azazel is, it holds a key to our purification. Someone had to be designated for the job of escorting the goat, the demon, if you will, Azazel, back to the wilderness, which meant essentially back to hell from where it came. That's the symbolism. In the Hebrew, in the text, he's called the Ish Iti, that special man, right? The special man that gets charged to do this. Um, He was the one to move between the civilized world and the wilderness. Imagine yourself as the Ish Iti this week. Literally, the man or the person of the moment performing that job. The designated escort knew this one secret. All of our sins can be traced to that wild part in us that's lost misdirected, suppressed, angry, bottled up, frustrated, overcome with desire. 
If the wild, the ecstatic in us is not honored, if you will, if it's not dealt with, if it's not allowed to have its vitality, it will find an outlet in you through cruelty and violence and other sinful behavior. And so the ish iti, the person of the moment, escorted the goat with all of that onto the goat into the wilderness. And what he was doing was returning the misdirected energy back to its source. One of the ways it was described to me kind of in a, a fantasy kind of way was to imagine a, a very angry beast that's out in the wilderness and it's starving and it's so angry and it's so hungry and it's threatening just to con- come and consume the entire village. And so the leader says, you know what? Let's just feed it something. Let's just throw something out there. Let it devour it. It'll be satisfied. And so the goat is that. It's throwing it back to the beast. But what are you throwing the beast? Everything that's misplaced in the camp. Everything that doesn't belong in the camp or in the tabernacle or in the confines of holiness. You're taking that and you're feeding it. And therefore, it's being exercised. Our spiritual challenge this week is to find that wild place inside of us and through intentional and purposeful and redemptive spiritual practice, give it a voice, name it, give it its place. If we do not, it will get twisted and become a destructive force. Return the goat to Azazel is allowing the wild part of us its wildness, just to name it, but then to take it to the wilderness and let it free. So during this week of Akare Mot Kedeshim, here's what I would encourage you to do as you read through the portion. Pay extra special attention in your own life about very basic things. How and what you eat and how you use your energy. Just pay attention to it. Take a kind of a, an accounting of that. How are you using your energy? And how are you using desire? Desire is not, it's just desire in and of itself. How are you using it? And what is wild and potentially dangerous? Instead of avoiding it, or ignoring it, or thinking it'll go away, or this, that was the last time. Speak it. Honor it, if you will. And then remember the one who was willing to be fed to the beast on your behalf to take it away. And then have that image that I've named it. It doesn't have control over me anymore. And it's been returned to its source, it's been consumed, and it's been satisfied. And all that I need has been paid for as well. So just kind of pay attention to the idea of holiness. How is your life different because of the one you follow from Nazareth? Eventually, in a couple weeks, in Mosaic will hit in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talking about that when he says you're to be salt. How are you salt? 
are you solved? That's what's kind of floating around this week. All right, we'll close there. We will gather next week, same place, same time, as we continue through Vayikra, the book of Leviticus. Let's close with a blessing. Baruch atah Adonai noten hatarah. Blessed are you, Lord God, who has given to us the gift that is the Torah. Amen. Shalom, shalom. Go in peace.